You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. This is episode eight, released as we roll into the heat of summer, at least where I live and probably where you live. And I hope you are all staying healthy and safe as well as cool and chill. This episode is scheduled to be released on Sunday, July 12th. And if all goes as planned, at that time, I will be out in the hinterlands of Otero County, on the eastern side of Colorado. I'll be driving out there to help with the Copark Herp Survey of that area. Now, Copark is the Colorado chapter of PARC, or Partners in Amphibians and Reptile Conservation. PARC has a number of chapters around the U.S., and I've attended a few of the chapter meetings over the years. Of course, you can find out more about PARC at www.parkplace.org. That's PARC, P-A-R-C. And hopefully I can put together a park-related show at some point in the future. Copark does herp surveys at various places around Colorado, and they are open to public participation. It's been a while since my last Copark survey. I did help out with one in the Four Corners region of the state almost a decade ago, and man, we had a great time out there. This herp survey stuff is actually related to today's show in an offhand way. If you're willing to get out there and participate in herp surveys and bioblitzes and whatnot, they can sometimes lead to other opportunities. And for me, it resulted in having my first experiences with hellbenders. I won't ever forget that. I first found out about hellbenders, like many people, as a single-digit kid uh, living out in California, and I was reading about them in a nature encyclopedia. And there was a painting of a hellbender by Walter Ferguson in the account, and it didn't look like much, kind of a murky brown tetrapod coming out from under a rock. But but what a name. Uh, who came up with the term hellbender for such an obscure, seldom-seen creature? And, you know, I wonder that today, as well as my nine-year-old self wondered it years ago. Like the animal itself, the origin of the name remains obscure, and there are many more local names for them, such as Allegheny Alligator. But the only one that I really like for them is Snot Otter, which is an apt description as well as deliciously alliterative. Holding a hellbender is like holding a bag of goo, and they have a slime coating that makes them very difficult to hang on to. If you're new to hellbenders, we are talking about a giant aquatic salamander, Cryptobranchus alleghaniensis, that typically lives on the bottom of cool, fast-moving streams. And there is a population of hellbenders in the Ozark region of Missouri and Arkansas, and another one in appropriate habitat in the eastern United States. Uh, I urge you to see the Wikipedia page for hellbenders. There's just plenty more information available there. Well, how are hellbenders doing? Um, It's the same sad old story, I'm afraid. Hellbenders are in trouble in many places. Their populations are affected by agricultural runoff habitat destruction, uh, persecution by fishermen, and poaching for the pet trade. Now, now hellbenders are gone from my home state of Illinois, where they probably only had a toehold in the first place, 
And they are in big trouble in Indiana, which is where today's interview takes us. We're going to hear from Nick Bergmeier from Purdue University, who has been a part of the research and recovery program for Indiana Hellbenders. Uh, now, Nick and I have been friends for quite a while, and it was through him that I first became acquainted with these fascinating creatures. And once you get hold of a hellbender, the hellbender gets hold of you, figuratively and occasionally, literally. So let's get to my conversation with Nick Bergmeier. Hello, everyone. I'm talking with Nick Bergmeier today. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. So I brought Nick on the show because I want to talk about Hellbanders, and he's, he's the guy. And we have some history with Hellbanders together, and he graciously agreed to come on the show and talk about his experiences with Hellbanders in Indiana. And so, Nick, can you tell us a little bit about your where you're at professionally, uh, your professional qualifications and so forth? Yeah, I am the research biologist and extension wildlife specialist for the, the Health the Hellbender program at Purdue University. So, so I have kind of a split appointment. I'm about 50% research and management uh, for hellbenders, and then I'm about 50% extension and outreach. So I go around and I give programs and, and I create brochures and videos for hellbender education. Excellent. And so as part of, before we get into the meat of the show, as part of your extension and outreach or duties, who do you talk to? You know, we talk, we talk to pretty much all groups. So I, I specifically have a little bit of a focus on K through five education. My wife's an elementary school teacher. So, so I go to, go to several local elementary schools in the area and present some lesson plans that we've, we've developed for teachers, uh, for those students. But we, we also spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time interacting with landowners and making sure they're on board with the kind of things that we do. Uh, cause it's, it's really important mm -hmm. for the landowners to awesome. not only really like us, but to feel some sort of investment in the, in the hellbender program. So, so we try to okay. get them involved as best as we can. Okay. And you and your wife, Marcy live in Southern Indiana where the hellbenders yep, are yep. at. We're stationed right next door where they're hanging on. Okay. Let me kind of start this off back to the part where I kind of got a little bit involved in it, and I'm still incredibly grateful for that opportunity. We first met back in 2007, and we met at Snake Road, which I meet so many people for the first time at Snake Road, and I pulled up with some of my buddies, and you were trying to call in a barred owl and uh, with, with your barred owl uh, imitation and I just like blundered right into the middle of it and the owl is still flying yeah, away. Yeah, he scared my owl uh, away. Yeah. So, but we managed to, to patch things up and move on from there. So, but, uh, so 2007, we first meet and that same year we have, we have a mutual friend, Greg Stevens, you and Greg went to school together and, uh, he's a heck of a guy. And I spent a few days in Indiana doing some cool things. First of all, Greg invited me to come down and help him with a timber rattlesnake project. He was tracking, daily tracking timber rattlesnakes in the forest and finding them with a radio transmitter, a radio receiver. Uh, they had transmitters uh, inserted in them. And so we walked around the forest and we found all these gorgeous timber rattlesnakes. And uh, I got in there because... Greg put in a good word for me. They let me tag along. So I had this great timber rattlesnake experience. And then I think the next day we came down and met up with you and got to work with your team 
in uh, some of what I call, I guess, is preliminary work on studying the hellbenders of southern Indiana. Uh, so can you tell us what was going on back then? Yeah, so you, you came down roughly, that would, would have been in 2008. So that would have been my first year under my grad project at Purdue because uh, I, was, I was doing surgeries on the hellbenders when you were down there, right? Right. Well, I came down there two years in a row. Okay. Uh, I may have come down there a year before you were involved. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Well, when you were down there with me, we were we had just started really Indiana's first major push uh, to learn about their Hellbender project or their Hellbender population. Because back, I think from roughly the late '90s through the mid 2000s, the Indiana DNR they did kind of an annual survey for Hellbenders, uh, but there wasn't other than a handful of sites. They didn't know much about the population and. The only other survey really in Indiana was way back in the 80s, and that was a, a researcher that basically said, yeah, all the hellbenders are disappearing. And then there was that big, almost two-decade gap where there wasn't anything that happened. And then roughly uh, the mid-2000s, the DNR approached Purdue and, and said they, wanna, they want to take a look at their hellbender population and learn as much as they can about it with the idea that it's, it's probably disappearing and they need to, if they want to save it, they need to do something. So that's when I started. So when you came down, I was in the, the very beginning phases. We were, we were doing some population surveys and we were collecting genetic samples uh, for some population genetics work. And I was specifically at that point implanting transmitters in the hellbenders that we found so we could follow them around for about a year and a half and get some home range and uh, hopefully see if we could find some some breeding populations and, and just learn as much about them as possible. Yeah. And so I came down and got in the river. Greg and our, our friend Don Becker uh, came he, he along. He and all the big rocks. Don is a very, very strong fella, and he got to lift rocks the size of car hood. And uh, it was funny. Way everybody has sort of a job. You have the, the lifters who lift the rocks. And you have the netters who, uh, you're doing this underwater, right? You're in, you're in the middle of the stream, and you, and you have to have people with nets to catch the hellbenders that might come yeah. out. And then you have gropers, which are getting their hands under the water, under the rock as it's lifted, and trying to feel yeah. for a yeah. hellbender. And, and hoping uh, that Don likes them enough not to drop the rock on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because those are some big rocks. It's an interesting experience. And when I had a turn as a groper, that was interesting as well, because uh, one of the things I groped, or a few things I groped were crayfish, which are kind of interesting because <laughs> they, they pinch by it, they pinch you. And I also put my hands on a catfish. It was like, oh, something long and tubular, but it doesn't feel right. You know, it was like hard yeah. and, you know, it was just different. It wasn't slimy or anything, and it wasn't squishy. And uh, it was like, oh, my gosh, what? I had no idea. But it, I finally figured out it was a catfish. And, of course, we did manage to, to get, by using that technique, I think we got maybe five. Yeah, the the site that. that you went to was is one was and still is one of our best sites, one of the few sites in the river that still has a decent population on its own. We haven't released any hillbenders there at this point yet. Okay. Yeah. And so we, we would catch them and bring them into shore. And they would, if they were a good candidate, they would have uh, surgeries done to implant a transmitter. Uh, and then let's see what else. Uh, you swabbed them uh, for chytrid fungus, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it took a DNA sample. Yeah, we, we did 
Uh, we did the chytrid swabs. We took a blood sample, which was was uh, really actually looking at blood chemistry and, and health rather than uh, we didn't use it for genetics too much. We took a tail snip for genetics at that time. We looked them over, just kind of made sure they had all their fingers and toes and didn't have any noticeable problems and stuck that transmitter in them and then let them go. Yeah. And I licked one. You did, you did lick one. Yeah. I've never done that. That's uh, I don't recommend I don't, it. I wouldn't either, really. It was terrible. And my tongue went numb for a little bit. It was, it was, but I wanted a full hellbender experience. So then I thought I was in this small club and then, then that guy Brady Barr licked one on TV and that made, really kind of made me mad. So, cause I didn't want to be in a club with Brady Barr. Yeah, but but, you, you were first. You know, I was first. Yeah. So it was an exciting thing to help out with this project and just be brute strength, you know, the brute squad in the, in the water, lifting the big rocks and, helping to secure hellbenders. And then uh, we helped you get them. You planted transmitters in them you had some, uh, to get some data. And what kind of data did you you get from following these hellbenders around? I, I guess you were out on the river, what, once a day? Once we put those transmitters in, uh, so that would have, we normally did the surgeries in, in the summer. And that batch of hellbenders, we followed around uh, anywhere from two, or th- two to three times a week for the next until the following October. So about 12 to 15 months, depending on what point of the year we caught them in, in 2008. And what did you learn about the these animals? Did you learn anything unexpected or? I think, you know, we didn't learn as far as home range is concerned. You know, that wasn't too unexpected. They, they really just don't move a whole lot. We, we kind of had an idea that they they like to stick around in a small area, and that's that's really what they did. I think probably with the home range stuff, the most important thing we actually learned, we, we could develop a, a survival estimate from that. And the survival for adult hellbenders from year to year is pretty high. It's 80, 80 plus percent. Once they get to that point where we're catching them, which is probably anywhere from 12 to 30 years old, so they're... 15 plus inch or 30 centimeter plus hellbenders, they really just don't don't die too often. Um, there's not a lot of predators other than otters, and once they get that big, so and uh, the occasional fishing line. Yeah, yeah, fishing has uh, at least historically has been kind of a problem. Although most of the anglers we talk to now, uh, when they catch them, a lot of the times they report them. Or they, you know, when I usually when I chat with them, I'm like, yeah, we, we caught them, we let them loose. Uh, they might tell me that in the past, you know, 30 years ago, we'd catch them and throw them on the bank, bash them in the head. But now most of the people we talk to seem to have figured out that they're not a problem for what they want to do and that they're kind of rare. So they let them go. Does your ed- education and outreach portion of what you do, does that include anglers and uh, you say locals, and it's not just landowners. That do you get a talk? Is that part of it too? Talking to the fishermen and getting them to understand what's going yeah, on. Yeah, we have we have some materials. There's a local uh, uh, gun store, hunting and fishing store that we we keep some of our materials in there, and we do a lot of just small events, a lot of the local fairs, and we have a presence at most of the boat ramps around here. So cool. we we do talk to a lot of. Uh, especially a lot of fishermen. We go to a lot, we go to fishing shows here in southern Indiana and northern Kentucky, and talk to a lot of people there. Do you feel like you you win some hearts and minds? Uh, yeah, I do. We actually uh, this happened before I came back to Purdue, but they did a survey of landowners 
in this uh, tri-county area down here where I work, and uh, their their perception of hellbenders from when the project started to the point where they did the survey, which at that point had been about five years, they uh, pretty much across the board had a, a positive increase in things like you know how they would respond if they found a hellbender or how they actually felt about mm. hellbenders and there were there were several other things that they they looked at and they were all all generally positive um once they really That's learned great. about them so so we've sort of described the first phase of this right which is collecting some animals and then collecting some data and before we get into i guess what you would call the next phase when you start putting your plans together we should probably talk about the what we were doing, the techniques we were using to get those hellbenders is not something we want everyone to do. Pulling a hellbender out from under a rock is a great way to to get one if you need to collect scientific data, but it's really not a great idea. to. If you want to see a hellbender, it's not a th- great thing to do because you can really disturb the habitat, the animal, their eggs. Um, what am I missing here? I mean, that basically, so, so herping for hellbenders is, is essentially the same as herping for most other things we do on land. We're just, we're just running around flipping rocks. But in this case, we're doing it in the water. And since hellbenders, they really key in on specific things about rocks. They like rocks that are kind of embedded on, uh, around most of the sides. So they just have one or two entrances that are usually downstream. Um, so there's not a lot of flow getting under these rocks. There's not much light getting in. And... When you flip those rocks underwater, it generally, it's almost impossible to get them back the way they came. So now there's flow getting under the rock. There's more light getting in. And, and in many cases, we've seen when you flipped like nest rocks where there's actually a nesting hellbender under there, uh, they, they don't come back to those rocks in the future. They, they abandon the rocks. And, you know, this is a pretty common technique that all the hellbender researchers have used for the last, since hellbender research started, really. We have almost universally, at least in the hellbender community, kind of abandoned this as a as a practice. Uh, we we just at this point we know enough about the populations. We we learned what we needed to learn uh, by flipping those rocks, and now we're to the point where we just don't do that anymore. So so we've sort of switched yes. to a a non invasive snorkeling method where we just put on some wetsuits and goggles and get an underwater flashlight and and we can uh, swim around the river and shine our lights under rocks and. You can still see hellbenders that way. And in some cases, depending on the time of year, it's easier because the hellbenders are sitting right at the edges of the rock and, and you don't have to have three or four 250-pound guys flipping rocks. You can just shine your light under there, see the hellbender, and move along. Plus, you get to see lots of other cool things. You get to see you know, the mussels yeah. uh, displaying under underwater and, and the fish. Once you're in the water with the fish, they just kind of act like you belong there. They follow you around. They're not as scary yeah. anymore. It's pretty cool. See a lot of turtles. Yeah, it's it's very cool. You know, while I'm glad I got the opportunity to do what we did, I'm also, you know, it's one of those please don't do what we did things, but there are better ways to do it. And I think some people can find them while snorkeling. They sometimes they're out in the open too. They're not always under rocks. Yeah, if you want to if no. if you're wanting to find them out in the open, your best chance is to go out at night in an area where you know there's hellbenders because they they do typically come out at night and you'll you can see them crawling around. Uh, there, there is one population in North Carolina that, for whatever reason, they they seem to be somewhat diurnal. So you can just walk down to the creek, and there will just be hellbenders crawling around. I, I've heard of a couple spots in Georgia like that too. But so there you have it, folks. Uh, you know, we you can see these things if you put a little work into it. But we 
we, we urge you not to lift the rocks up and, uh, and make it hard for them to, to exist. And so uh, the next phase is to take the data you've gathered and, and you've got a clue now about what's going on. So you've got to figure out how to conserve these animals. Yeah, so, so our first, what we're kind of calling a phase, really ended in probably 2011, 2012. And so at that point, we knew about the population genetics. So we, we knew which hellbenders, our hellbenders, were most closely related to and which ones they weren't very closely related to. Uh, we knew that our hellbenders, the remaining hellbenders in the river, they were healthy. So it didn't look like there were any, any problems with inbreeding or any chemicals in the river. We did a lot of water quality. We, we did uh, sperm testing. I mean, we, we really did everything to make sure that there wasn't just some little problem with our hellbenders that we were missing. And, and we didn't see any. So, so once we got all that data, we kind of moved into the second phase, which was uh, figuring out what the best plan was to to release hellbenders and if translocating hellbenders going and getting hellbenders from other areas and releasing them into the blue river if that could if that could be successful and so that's really what they did and that that work was done actually before i came back to purdue but they really they got a bunch of captive hellbenders from a different population and and they released them into the blue river and again they were all radio tracked and they they looked at their survival over a couple of years and they got a good survival estimate, which for those guys was a little lower than we would want. It was right around, I think, about 30%, which is not terrible for, especially for a, you know, captive reared helmet or captive reared animal. But, but our, our models really need that, uh, that survival to be above a 33% to, to basically eliminate the potential for, for extinction. So, so that was really that second phase. And so you're considering, um, you aren't finding young hellbenders, were you? No, in our population and in most populations at this point, what we find is really old, just geriatric populations. So, I mean, we, I, uh, most of the animals we find at this point that are resident animals are probably 20 to 30 years old. So we have never found a juvenile hellbender, a subadult hellbender since we've been doing the work in Indiana. Uh, they haven't found those since the 80s. But there has to have been some just because they don't they don't live quite that long. So there has to have been a few, but we're not finding them and they're they're not abundant. And that that's generally the case throughout most of their range is these sort of populations skewed to the, the higher age classes. With the exception of some places in like North Carolina and the Smoky Mountains where they still get lots of reproduction and you can go out and find find all age classes and they have what you know, the stable, healthy populations, but most of the Midwest is not that way. And so uh, what was the speculation on as to why you're missing breeding adults and you're not getting recruitment or young, young hellbenders? Is it a, an invasive fish issue or is it, yeah. you know, it seems like you study the water quality? Yeah. What, what is the problem that, that caused these things not to, to stop breeding? Or? So there's, there's a few ideas. Uh, sort of the dominant idea is that when, when hellbenders are born or when they hatch, the larvae typically burrow down in the gravel substrate on the bottom of a river. And especially throughout the Midwest with you know, the uh, large agricultural areas throughout Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky. Well, we don't want to get Kentucky lumped into the Midwest, but Western Kentucky, Illinois, 
all that gotcha. all that sediment runoff has in a lot of places filled in those cracks. And so even if the adults are breeding, the when the larvae get hatched, they don't have anywhere to go and they just die from stress or predation. And eventually that led to you know, the lack of recruitment. And so the adults are dying off. And now we've gotten to the points where there's so few adults, they're just not coming together to breed at all. That's, that's the general idea. There, There is some recent research that it looks like areas that have just experienced a lot of riparian deforestation, which has resulted in sort of some general water quality decline. So like increases in conductivity, uh, they don't see nearly as much successful recruitment in those areas which is sort of a separate but related problem to just generally agriculture. I see. You know, secondarily, there's things. Kittred doesn't actually look to be a big problem with hellbenders. There's very few actually reported cases of wild hellbenders succumbing to Kittred. Well, there are some localized stuff with, with, in the past, a lot of persecution from people. I mentioned earlier, some fishermen, you know, told me what they used to do. But in the past that was pretty widespread. You know, they would pull up, hellbenders used to love trot lines uh, set for, for catfish. And so they would pull up a whole trot line full of hellbenders and those would all, they would just kill all those, some towns. Oh my yeah, there's, there's old newspaper articles of like a whole town would get together and have hellbender calls because they thought hellbenders were, were poisonous or they ate all the fish. So they would have just a big old party going out and getting hellbenders and, and uh, killing as many as they could. So... It's hard to yeah, believe. Yeah, so that was that was probably yeah, responsible for some local declines, but you know, yeah. widespread stuff. It's mostly environmental. And so uh, you sort of are in this place where you've got to do something, but the only thing you can really do is try to bring in other individuals. Yeah. So right. in our area, so one of the things before you before you do any you know wildlife reintroduction, you need to make sure that the problem isn't just still there if you want it to be you know, ultimately a success. Fortunately, in our area, we have a pretty active uh, natural resources conservation service and soil and water conservation districts. So they do a lot of work with farmers. And and our area has one of the the highest adoption rates in the state for like cover crops and uh, no-till farming and riparian buffers. So from what we understand, uh, the river is, the condition of the river has greatly improved over the last couple of decades and the water quality yeah the water quality is good in our area so we're pretty comfortable putting hellbenders back in the system and we think that they they would be successful if they actually could just if there were enough of them to to establish a, a small population and breed we think we could probably get to the point where we could have a self-sustaining population so I yeah see. so that is that's kind of where we are now is uh we're to the point where we're actively managing the population of hellbenders Okay, so you tried putting in uh, adults from other places, and uh, uh, I know in in Missouri they collected eggs, and uh, the St. Louis Zoo learned how to do proper husbandry on the eggs and get the rear the uh, the Ozark Albender up to appreciable size to release in, into Ozark streams. Was that on your radar as well? It or? was. So. So I should mention we didn't we didn't move adult hellbenders from other places. We had we actually had juvenile hellbenders that we moved from other places. Yeah, I so, see. Okay. so we since uh, and that was planned that way because uh, we knew in the future we would be releasing juvenile hellbenders. So we wanted to see how how those captive juvenile hellbenders did when we we released them. Just as kind of a little pilot study. Okay. Uh yeah, but so yeah, uh, St. Louis Zoo they they had they sort of 
uh, perfected the the hellbender rearing technique. Uh, they were sort of that that founder group, and and several places now at this point raise or rear hellbenders. And so yeah, we spend a lot of our time. Basically, my whole September and October is is either is either snorkeling through. Uh, the river we work here in Indiana, or now we we work with Ohio and Kentucky to snorkel some of their rivers and, and get eggs from them, and, and sort of as an exchange, especially with Kentucky, because they're kind of the they were kind of the black hole of hellbenders for a while. Nobody knew anything about hellbenders in Kentucky, so in exchange for getting eggs from them, we help them do some habitat some habitat work and some habitat evaluations, and and look at some of their rivers, and so they're kind of getting into it now too. Cool, cool. Regional teamwork. Yeah, I mean, this. So uh, it's it's probably something that that needs said. Is you know we talk we've mentioned a lot about the Indiana DNR and and Purdue as 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 if we're the only ones doing this work. But this this is actually a pretty big partnership. We've got four zoos in our area uh, in Indiana that help us that rear eggs and and uh, do a lot of outreach and education. We work with the local soil and water conservation districts and the local. Nature Conservancy to to work with landowners and and we've branched out to work with you know Kentucky Division of Fish and Wildlife and Ohio uh, Department of Natural Resources and, and Ohio State so so it is kind of a big a big group and just recently UK University of Kentucky they've they've started they got on board and so we're doing a little work with them helping them out and they give us information so yeah it's it's a nice big partnership at this point and and they're really just completely involved with our work. And that's not to mention all of the the region-wide hellbender researchers that are constantly bouncing stuff off each other and helping each other out. It's right. it's a pretty good community to work right. with. It takes a village to raise a yep. hellbender. <laughs> <laughs> so you you are you are actually not involved with raising you, you might have harvested some eggs, but you know you're not actually involved in raising Young hellbenders. Uh, Purdue is. I Purdue don't do is. much of it. So, so what happens is uh, our, our general process is I go out and find the habitat and the animals and collect the eggs, and then I take them to the zoos or to Purdue, and they rear the. Uh, one of my coworkers rears the hellbenders at at Purdue, and then we rear those to about anywhere between three and a half and five and a half years old, and then they bring them to me, and I. I've picked out places all throughout the river to release them. So I've picked out the release sites. And so you're you're going in the river and seeing if there are good rocks and checking out the condition of the gravel or cobble on, on the bottom to see if it'll support them and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, we, we did we did two things. So the river I work in, the hellbender habitat is about it's roughly 110 kilometers worth of hellbender uh, potential hellbender habitat. So I. I canoed that entire section and and characterized the entire area based on the, like the the number of large boulders and the substrate, so like the gravel or or bedrock and uh, the flow, so like riffle run pool type stuff. And then we put that uh-huh. we fed that into a model that was developed by a grad student that also had lots of like forest cover data and surrounding environmental data, and that helped us in uh-huh. in combination with with just actually getting out there and seeing like, well, this is definitely a good place to put hellbenders. We also had that sort of, uh, the data supports, yeah, the, the data supports, you know, most, for the most part supports the, uh, boots on the ground choices. Cool. Uh, when we're talking about when you're releasing, 
uh, young, how better? So, first of all, what do you mean by young? I mean, how big are they, and, and how many are we talking here? So, uh, so about three and a half to five and a half years old, which is anywhere from uh, they're usually at least twelve inches long. Some of them might be up around fourteen or fifteen inches. Oh wow, they grow pretty slow. They, oh, they're they grow very slow. Uh, they're they're usually over a hundred grams, so anywhere between a hundred and 300 grams uh, they you know there's always a couple of really big ones in there and then there'll be a couple of tiny ones yeah, are they sexually dimorphic at all uh, all uh, not until they are not until they are uh, sexually mature and then only during the breeding season they're basically just like amistomatid salamanders during the breeding season the males their cloaca swells up and you can you can tell but outside of that you can only tell through uh, genetic sexing I see Hmm, that's interesting. A related question is, you know, what, what do they feed hellbenders? I mean, I'm sure they're not giving them tetramen or <laughs> no, no. Uh, they for the bloodworms eat, or you know whatever. They feed a lot of so the smaller ones, the larvae, which are only about an inch long. They mostly get blackworms. When they get a little bigger, they give them blackworms and mysis shrimp, kind of cut up mysis shrimp, and then once they get big enough, we we start feeding them brown trout or uh, rainbow trout fry, trout fry, and uh, crayfish. And we really want them, we really want them to get them used to eating crayfish because that's primarily what they're going to be eating in the wild. Okay. Was it brown or rainbow uh, trout? Which I kind of, I actually, I don't remember. It's, it's trout fry. Okay. Whatever they can get commercially okay. around here. I remember reading something about the Ozark Albender and the issues the larvae have with uh, introduced trout because detection and avoidance patterns they have the larvae are able to recognize a silhouette or a shadow of a local trout but they don't seem to respond to the same thing for an an introduced trout like a rain guess a rainbow trout's the introduced species so that just set off a memory yeah. there i don't know if that had anything to well, do with we, it, we don't have fortunately we don't have to worry about that issue we don't have there's only as far as i know there's only one river and in our range down here in Indiana where they release trout and they can't survive. They're just kind of a seasonal thing. Okay. Uh, so we don't, okay. we don't really have any to worry about the trout. We just, they make a good food source. We want to train our hellbenders to fight back. <laughs> okay. All right. So it's trout for dinner. Yep. Gotcha. All right. So this project has gone on and on and uh, the hellbenders are very slowly getting bigger. And then you release them. How many do you release? Uh, if, you, if you've got a primo spot, how many do you want to put at the primo so spot? The, the rough the formula spot? we have been working with is one hellbender per 100 square meters, which is a pretty common uh, density of hellbenders we, you see in the literature. And so basically what we do is we measure our sites, we figure out a one, meter, one hellbender per 100 meters square, and then we double it to account for... Uh, approximately 50% survival, and, and you know if there's if there's if we get more that survive, it's not a big deal because they can they can handle much higher densities than one per 100 square meter. So they'll work it out. Yeah, they'll, right? they'll, they'll figure work. it out. That means do you have like priority spots and then secondary spots? You know, like oh, these are the ten really good places, and then these are the ten okay spots. Is that That's how it works? Yeah, everything's weighted. Pretty much exactly how that is. We we picked out. For this first few years of releases, we picked out roughly 12 or 13 sites that were sites we they were 
roughly equidistant apart, and they were close enough based on some previous research that we knew that hellbenders would be able to move between them if they needed to, there would be some dispersal between sites. And these sites just had a lot of habitat. They've got, uh, they've got a good prey base. And so, so yeah, that's, that's what we're really focused on. And then we do have a lot of backup sites in case uh, we decide that one site's not good enough or we, we decide somehow end up with extra hellbenders that we can, we can put out in an area, which isn't going to be ever be a problem for us. We're, we're never going to have extra hellbenders, but, uh, and we're sort of moving in so, a upstream to downstream stream uh, direction. So we, we have the top ones first. So if they, if they want to move down, then they can. We gotcha. do have one site that is sort of the premier hellbender site in the river, and it still has it still has a sizable adult population. Uh, we've we've worked at it for the last thirteen years, and it's got great habitat. It's got some some groundwater that flows into it, so it's it's uh, it stays nice and cool. Um, and we it's right in the middle of our sites, and we've been using that as our that's our primary research site. So we do a lot of we don't just raise hellbenders in captivity to release them. That is part of what we do. But since we're, we're we are Purdue University, we do a lot of research, and, and sort of our right. goal is if we have these animals in captivity for you know three to five years, we want to learn something about them while they're in captivity and see if we can we can improve on things. So we do have this nice research site where all of our research animals go. And and we kind of, we kind of keep that consistent, so so it's the results are comparable between uh, between experiments. Okay. When you release them, do you do you put a pit tag in them uh, so you can recover them if necessary, or record their movements, or yeah, whatever? Yeah. So all of our all of the animals we release get a, a pit tag, a passive integrated transponder. So so they all have that individual ID. And all of our research animals, all the experimental animals, they also get a transmitter. So we don't do these experimental releases every year because they're, they're very expensive and time-consuming. But about every other year, we have a batch of hellbenders that has, have got, gone through some sort of you know, captive experiment. And we're, we're trying to, to look at the survival and, and get those results. So they're all transmitted. Okay. What can you tell us? Oh, in terms of research of these captive animals, what have you learned? Have you learned anything interesting? Yeah, we've we've learned a lot of things, a lot of interesting things, and we're still, I mean, we're still actively doing research. We just started a few new projects just this year. So this was really kind of the third phase. Uh, so we got through that initial data gathering phase, and then we got into that the phase where we looked and see if you know, the translocations were, were possible and, and what we actually needed to get as far as like the population modeling. And then we kind of moved into the, the research phase, which is uh, mostly done by grad students and they, they do a lot of captive conditioning experiments. So, you know, a lot of these animals, a lot of captive reared animals are just raised like pets and then they're thrown out in the wild and and they generally have relatively poor survival. They have no survival instincts. They they get eaten. They can't find food. So we ah. so we have we have several experiments that we've done over the last five years. We've raised we raised some of our hellbenders in and in indoor streams that emulate the actual river. So they have that same those same flow conditions that they'll experience in the wild. Where uh, another batch of them, the the control animals, are just raised in no flow conditions. Uh, we raised a bunch of hellbenders. Uh, we raised some in actual Blue River water. So we, we trucked water all the way 
up to uh, Purdue, and we we exposed several hellbenders to several. We I think it was about forty to that Blue River water. That basically, we we then looked at the microbiota, the skin microbiota, to see what was growing on them compared to animals that were just raised in our uh, the facility water. Um, so that that's pretty cool. And then we also exposed some of the hellbenders to fish. So what we did was we had these we had an aquarium set up, and above the hellbenders were aquaria with that were either empty or aquaria with bass in them. And some of the ones with the bass, we fed those tiger salamanders, uh, tiger salamander larvae, and that water flowed directly down into the hellbenders. And then there were those empty tanks flowing into those hellbenders. So those were the control animals. And so we were we were presumably exposing them to like tiger salamander alarm cues when they were attacked by the ah. bass. And what we did okay. was we then measured, we put the hellbenders in a respirometer and we exposed them to bass, uh, to bass cues. And we could compare the, the physiological differences between the ones that had previously been exposed to tiger salamanders and the ones that were exposed to nothing. Uh, and what we saw were that the ones that had been previously exposed to bass they they behaved how you would want them to behave. So they kind of stopped moving around. They would stay hidden, whereas the other ones would just go about the business. But physiologically, they also they did not experience as much as much stress as the ones that had not been exposed to bass. The the ones that had never been exposed that that exposure that exposure to bass caused them to to experience excess stress, uh, which which I was see. an interesting finding. So. Yeah, so you know right away that releasing a bunch of environmentally stagnant hellbenders is going to be a big shock. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And so what we, what all those ones that we release with transmitters are for is then we can compare the survival between the ones that lived in, you know, no flow conditions or were never exposed to bass um, or didn't have the previous exposure to river water. And then we can compare those with the ones that did. And we can we can see how the survival changes between or is different between those two groups. And we only we have results back from the flow conditioning ones, and and they're pretty positive. There is uh, the ones exposed to the flow uh, or flow conditioning in captivity. They they generally tend to survive better than those that that do not. So which is what we were hoping for. Right. Very interesting. So. Have you published any data on this, or do you plan to publish the data we, on this? Or? We have a we're prepping that flow conditioning paper right now. It's I just cool. turned it into my my boss a few weeks ago, and the other papers, uh, the other papers we we those hellbenders actually aren't getting released until next year. So we'll start collecting the field data on those next year. Then we'll be able okay. to we'll definitely work up results from that at some point. Okay, that's it. That's fascinating. I mean, I have a vested interest in these animals now. Yeah, it's that's <laughs> I got to help out. I mean, it's just so curious as to what's what's happening. Yeah, now. it's it's pretty cool it's just, stuff. And so you've learned a lot of things along the way, and you feel like you're going to be making a difference. And then, what's the long term plan? You keep uh, you're going to keep re releasing them? Are you going to take your uh, perfected? protocols and data set on the road to other areas and states and uh, so what's the future hold for this for indiana uh right now the the indiana dnr seems to be pretty invested in 
hellbender reintroductions, they they talk about continuing in the Blue River and, and finishing out the kind of the, the lower, roughly lower half of the Blue River area. And they, they've also been talking about reintroducing into another nearby river, which seems to have pretty suitable habitat. Uh, that's, it's actually a tributary of the Blue River, sort of. It's, it's a tributary underground to the Blue River. So, so you don't actually see the, the inflow, but, but we will. Uh, so they, they seem pretty invested in Indiana. They, they want the program to continue. And I mean, the idea with our, that we're all the captive rearing research that we have is to hopefully, you know, show if, if we get positive results, the, the hope is that other areas will, uh, you know, adopt those techniques. And hopefully all of us can see, you know, a roughly, you know, increase in uh, hellbender survival when they, they release them. Awesome. This has been really cool. Um, did you have you ever had a chance to, to to study or come in contact with the big Chinese or Japanese? You know the Hanzaki, the big uh, the big ones, the big cryptobranched salamanders. I have. So. I, I went to China in 2012. Uh, I flew into. Lucky dog. I, I flew. I went with a friend, <laughs> and and we actually went from Beijing to Chengdu to Hong Kong, and uh, Chengdu is where they have local populations of the giant salamanders, uh, the Andreas. And we didn't get to see any in the wild because we went in February, so it's freezing. But I gave a presentation at their biological institute there on the work that we did, and they took us up to one of their their breeding facilities uh, where they have hundreds of of giant salamanders uh, for some mix of culinary purposes and conservation. And Oh my gosh! They are, they're pretty cool. I mean, these things. I mean, the ones I saw weren't huge uh, relative to what they can get, but they were huge relative to anything I've ever seen. They were between three and four feet long. Wow, that would be something. I guess I should be amazed at the, you know, the half of them going for food, and, let's say, and half of them going back into the into the population, but. I saw the same thing in Cuba with the Cuban crocodile farms that the government runs. You know, half half the crocs end up in as a wallet or a pair of shoes, and the other half got put back in in the wild. And so maybe that's maybe that's how you do it, and maybe that's effective. Uh, it seems so weird, but that's that's how other people do it. So I chose not to sample the uh, the delicacy over there. I didn't. I wasn't into that, but it was there. Wow. Uh, what do they do? Do they Put it in the soup, or how do they uh, eat that? It? I don't know. Uh, I know okay. that there are some old recipes for hellbenders, and I think they they mostly just ate the tail meat. So there'd be a lot of a lot of tail oh. meat on a giant salamander. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I can't even imagine. But you know, people eat a lot of stuff. So, well, it, what else can you tell us about the project? Um, it, you you expect to be working on this for the foreseeable future, I guess. Um, you have any other projects you work on, or are you a strictly the? Are you the Hellbender dude? I'm, I'm pretty much the Hellbender dude. So uh, I most almost all of my time is focused on on Hellbender work, whether it's you know in the field working directly with Hellbenders or working with you know outreach and education work or uh-huh. writing grants. Where we yeah, have, well, we're we're sort of so we, you know, we're we're doing this all these Hellbender releases, and we kind of want to secure the the future of Hellbenders. So we're starting to work on some big conservation grants with the NRCS, uh, the, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, and the Soil and Water Conservation District to get more money to feed into the local communities for conservation practices to further increase those okay. riparian buffers and, 
Uh, right. So yeah, we're we're really trying to to hit all aspects of this. Sort of shores it up for the future. Definitely. I mean, yeah. we, we don't want to get to the point where we we've released all these hellbenders and then the surrounding environment starts to decline again, especially with, yeah. with climate change. We need to make it sort of resilient to the oh, future. Boy. So as best we can, we're, yeah. we're uh, working on that yeah. landscape scale conservation. I have one more question. How many times do you think you said the word hellbender? In my life or in this interview? <laughs> <laughs> well, in this interview, I can go back and count them, but oh. you think you said it like a million times? Oh, man, I'd probably say I've, uh, on days where I'm around people, because I do sometimes work alone, uh, I'd probably say hellbender on a bad day, you know, five or six times. But sometimes I'm just, you know, people like to talk about it. Family members like to talk about it. Friends like to talk about yeah. it. Uh, people we see on the river like to talk about it. So, you know, I, I probably say Hellbender on average close to 80 to 100 times a week. Wow. And so you see where I'm going with this because I'm thinking that you may say you may say the word Hellbender more than anyone else on the planet. I mean, there's yeah, I'm certainly in contention. There's a couple other people that are have similar jobs to me. The, they would be the, the only competitors. Well, you need to keep up the good work and keep bringing the Hellbender name up so you can stay on oh, top. That's, that's the plan. <laughs> can't lose, can't lose that unofficial title. No, I'm going to bring this up every time I see you from now on. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I, hopefully I'll see you again someday. We didn't get a good out, get out this year, but we've been on a couple of cool trips together. We did uh, can, We went to Kansas a few oh, years that was, ago. That was a great trip our buddy Greg and a few other people. And we had a pretty good time. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully we'll be seeing each other in Peru in a yes. half a year. If things, if things yes. work out. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping that things get better down there and I, I don't see any reason why not by January. I'm, I'm hoping. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to having you and Greg come down and we will turn you on to some cool critters and maybe some climbing salamanders. That'd be that's the closest thing I have to a hellbender down there. Yeah. So that'll be cool. It'll be all new for me. So I'm excited. Good. Well, I want to say thanks for coming on the show. I just really appreciate you you talking about what's going on. I I think uh, you know hellbenders are one of those things that people don't think about much, but once you see one, boy oh boy, they they can really grab your yeah. your they, brain and. and uh, and they certainly have fun. most of the people we've talked to that we talked to that have ever even seen one only once it's it's stuck with them they remember it you know 30 years ago i caught a hellbender and it scared the it scared the crap out of me hey they can bite pretty good now, you've never been bit though, not, have you? i i've never been bit okay. uh i do know another researcher just got bit a couple of days ago but uh in, in, oh, in, cool. in i think in north carolina maybe but but uh, nope, I've, I've managed to avoid it well, they can chomp down, and then they don't let go, and then they like to spin yeah. around. They're and, just and, like little mini alligators. Yeah. Do not tempt the hellbender, folks. No, um, your, they will treat you sorely. Yeah, keep your fingers out of their mouths. It's a good strategy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think we'll leave on that note. And once again, thanks for coming on the show, Nick. I'll edit that part <laughs> out. <laughs> it's been a long day. Hey there. I'll bet you thought we were done. But as it happens, Nick and I forgot to talk about some other pretty cool stuff about Hellbenders. So thanks for coming back on, Nick. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad we can finish this out. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what did we forget to talk about? Artificial habitats. 
let's get going on that. Yeah, so there's there's really there's several types of artificial habitats at this can, point. Can you tell us why we need artificial habitats for hellbenders to start it off? Yeah, so one of the, one of the problems that we've run across, and we, and we kind of touched on this a little bit when we talked about not flipping rocks um, and how that can disturb their habitat and mess up some especially nesting habitat. So we've run across in a lot of areas uh, that the nesting habitat is maybe suboptimal or we we need better ways to, to look for nesting habitat because it's it's pretty difficult when you're out surveying for these hellbenders, the snorkels. I mean, they can shove themselves pretty far back in the rocks and it's, it's hard to see them guarding their nest. So we've we've come up and I say we, this is the, the royal we, the, the hellbender community, maybe about a decade ago came up with artificial nesting huts for hellbenders. And I think, I think Missouri was probably the first place to really Im- implement these pretty heavily. And, and what they are, they're just, they're kind of shaped like a boot. So a P or a Q, depending on, on where you want to put them. And they're just essentially like a concrete box with a cavity on the inside and the lid on top. And then there's maybe a roughly foot long tunnel that comes off the front. So it, it simulates natural hellbender nesting habitat pretty well. So, so the male will go in these nest boxes and he's got a nice place to hang out on the inside, but then he has a nice tunnel, which basically only a single hellbender can fit into that he can guard once once he has a nest. So so it's it's pretty similar to what natural hellbender uh, a natural hellbender nest would look like. And it's it's easy for us because it gives us a place to go back and survey and there's a little lid on top. You can lift the lid, see if there's a hellbender inside, hopefully it's a male sitting on eggs. And so it just really makes it 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 adds habitat for the for the individuals plus it makes it easy for us to go back and, and have something to survey. Oh, how heavy are the lids? The lids are not heavy. The lids, uh, they're, they're attached to the box. I mean, the lids are just a couple of pounds, but the boxes themselves are about anywhere from 40 to 80 pounds, depending on how big you've made them. I see. And, and so we, who makes them? You know, that just really varies. So some places uh, in other states, they, they make molds and they make them themselves. Uh, some places have contracted with, with like a concrete company to make them for them. That gets pretty expensive, but those boxes tend to be pretty high quality. In Indiana, we actually work with a, a local women's prison in Southern Indiana and they make the boxes for us. uh, Yeah. So we, we kind of have a partnership with them and, and they seem to enjoy it. They seem to get, you know, they, I think uh, we've been told that the, the uh, women that make the boxes seem to, uh, they feel like they get a little bit out of it. So. Well, that's awesome. We report. Are they kind of bought into the program too? Yeah. Yeah. It seems to. And we usually try to report our results back to them. So, so they know how they're working and it's, it's cool. pretty good. It's a pretty good project. Awesome. So that's the, the male refugia. Yeah. So that, that is, that's what we're calling nest boxes. Um, so there's, there's still a couple other types of, of refugia. Uh, we have, uh, and these aren't as common. We have juvenile huts, which where that's kind of one of our current research projects in the lab right now, where we've uh, made a couple of different types of juvenile huts and we're looking at preferences in the lab. So before we 
sort of whole scale implement this in the wild. And and the idea behind the juvenile huts, because the juveniles, they don't they don't need that nice nesting habitat. So these huts are much smaller. Uh, the real idea behind these are to put them in areas with with suboptimal habitat, usually between what we would call like the good, the really good hellbender sites. So we'll install these for the most part in those transition areas between like great site one and great site two. And that will give them something to, you know, something to, if they find them, um, if we implement, if we uh, put out enough of these boxes, that will give them something to a nice little place to hide instead of, you know, a lot of times in these places they're, hiding under really small rocks or they're hiding under logs or in the mud banks. And these, these are generally not the best places. They're, they're a little more vulnerable to predators in these. So we're hoping that if we can get enough of these boxes in these, these uh, intermediate areas that they'll have better places to hide and higher so survival. You're, you're establishing a, a corridor of <laughs> refuges to that, link together. That is, the, that is the plan. Once, once we, once we nail down the design on the box, um, that is the plan is to probably have the, the women's prison actually make us, uh, we don't have a number, but it's going to be in the hundreds and then we'll install those in that corridor. So hopefully we'll increase the survival as they're moving between sites. That's very cool. I can't wait to hear how this all works out. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that, that actually the lab part of that study will be finished Sometime this year, uh, actually probably in the next couple of months, and then hopefully we'll have those boxes made over the winter, and then we'll be able to put them in next year, I think, the hope. Okay. And you have another type of refuge that is used? Yeah, so the third type of refuge, uh, it's it's a cobble bed. Um, we use these for a soft release. And for those of you that don't know what a soft release is, uh, that's basically where we release the individuals into into a habitat where they're kind of contained for a few days. So that gives them a chance to acclimate before they they are completely free to move about, as opposed to a hard release, which is where you just take, it would be like if you're, you know, if you're translocating a rattlesnake that's from somebody's yard uh, and you take the rattlesnake and then you just go move it a few miles to some other spot. That, that's a hard release. Uh, but, I see. But we've looked at these soft releases for a while and they, they, they seem... From the, the analyses that we've done, they seem to produce better results, uh, especially in terms of actually the animals staying in the sites. So, it so how does the cobble come into play with this? And so the, you have to explain what cobble is. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, so well. cobble, cobble. If, we're not if, talking about cobble Pakistan. <laughs> nope, nope. So cobble, we're talking about uh, rocks that are roughly, roughly three to maybe six or eight inches in diameter. Uh, think of your your limestone riprap that you see on the side of the road. It's it's that's essentially what we use. We use clean limestone riprap, and what we do is we we make a cage out of cattle fencing that is almost exactly the size of a twin ma- twin mattress. It's about six feet long and maybe three and a half or so feet wide. We put that cage in the river. We tote all this cobble out into the river and put it into the cage, and then so the hellbenders are actually free they can move in and out of that cage but what we do for the soft release we put a separate larger mesh cage over top of that that has zippers so we release our hellbenders into that zippered area they go into that and they can burrow down into that cobble they can move in and out of that that internal cobble bed cage uh, and then they're held within that mesh cage for about three days we take that mesh cage off and then they can just come and go from that cobble bed as they please 
and those cobble beds stay in the river. They don't. They aren't taken out. We uh, they're they're a long-term habitat supplementation. And the, these are in use now. You use these? Yeah. This is this is how we do almost all of our releases. Uh, there's. We, we might not be able to do these cobble beds in some of our more remote areas because, I mean, we each cobble bed weighs about uh, between a half to three quarters of a ton. So it's hard to move that oh. much rock that far out. But so far, our sites have been have had enough access that we can install two or three of these cobble beds in each site. Uh, but, yeah, we we do this for every release so far and we will we have a handful of releases here in the next couple of weeks and they're all getting these same cobble bed treatments so so for all of you listening out there who thought that hellbender research was just some fun snorkel time <laughs> i uh, beg to differ there's some hard work involved here yes there is there is uh there's a handful maybe about a, a couple of days to a week depending on on uh, how many cobble beds we're installing of just carrying rocks in five gallon buckets and Try not to fall down in the river and drop all your rocks in the bottom. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a good time. And and did you guys come up with the cobble beds or somebody else come up with that idea? Uh, as far as I know, so that, that idea was, I, I believe, my boss and one of my, one of uh, a grad student before I showed up came up with that idea. No, that's pretty clever, I think. It's it's not a it's not been published. I can say that for sure. We'll, I mean, we it, it's going to be mentioned in one of our in one of our upcoming publications, but it's it's not anything that I'm aware of anybody else having used. And it seems to be uh, working. Yeah, we even have had some hellbenders move in and out of them. Uh, when we were radio tracking, we've had some go to different cobble beds and hangouts. I mean, we don't install a ton of these, so we don't think it's really a maybe a feasible full-scale habitat augmentation uh, program, but it, it definitely works for the soft release, it seems. I see. And do you have a soft release that's coming this year, or have you had one? We have three. So uh, all we have three scheduled for the month of July. These are all fairly small releases. Um, only this year, it's only going to be, I think we're releasing five animals, 17 animals, and 17 animals, which is a little bit smaller than we've done in the past. And that's just how it's worked out. And that's a, it's just small because of our age classes that we have available. And we have uh, another set of experimental animals that we're releasing next year uh, that could have, they're old enough to be released this year, but we're doing them next year to give them another year in the experiments. So next year will be a big release. We'll have, I think, over 100 animals next year that we're releasing. And the year after will be a couple hundred animals. But, but this year is pretty small. I see. These bigger releases, are these public relations spectacles as well? Do you have folks there to witness and uh, do people write about it? Or is it, is it covered at all? Seems uh, like a big deal to me. In the past, over the last couple of years, we have had some newspaper uh, articles written about it. Uh, we had the, actually the DNR photographer. They wrote up a big, a big, nice article about some of our releases. It, it's been in some of the local papers. So we do try to get some, some local press, especially in southern Indiana, to, to cover some of these. So far, they've all been interested. They, they seem cool. to enjoy talking about the, the hellbenders. That's awesome. What else can you tell us about this, the, the refugia in, in artificial habitats? Is that sort of it in a nutshell, or is there more to it? you have future plans for something else? Or? You know, that's really all we're, 
we're working on right now, there's always, there are constantly other hellbender researchers. I mean, there's, there's hellbender researchers that are, are specifically focused on making these, these refugia better. And so, so it's always interesting to see what other people come up with. Like they've, they've come up with locking lids and designs that are hydrodynamic. So they help resist the flow a little bit. And, and, you know, we're, we're mostly focused up until recently, we've mostly just been focused on using them more so than researching them, but we're getting into that a little bit now, but, but it'll be interesting to see where, where these kind of go. I know there's some, some publications that some other people are planning on putting out about some nest box designs. So that's kind of where it is right now. They're, they are wildly successful in some places. I know Missouri's had a lot of success with them. They've got a lot of eggs from them. They are less successful in places like Indiana. The, the nest boxes specifically are less successful, successful in places like Indiana where they're, they're just lower density populations. So there just aren't as many hellbenders available to use them. We, okay. we have found hellbenders in them multiple times, but we've only actually pulled a single nest out of our nest boxes, which was exciting. We did actually get a nest out of one. Uh, but that that particular male likes to hang around the area we put our nest box in, so it was it was pretty good placement. But in places where they just don't have many hellbenders, they don't seem to work nearly as well. I see, I see. But at least you, the, it was a, it works at least in Indiana. It yeah. has worked to some extent. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we we did get our we did pull a nest out of it, which, as far as I'm concerned, that specific nest is actually those are the animals we're releasing this year and next year. So. So it's it's all been worth it. We got that that nest out of it. So that's several hundred animals that are going back to the river. I'm excited about this. That, that sounds like a, a big success story. Where do you think hellbenders would be if back in the day, back in the aughts, people didn't start paying attention to hellbenders and, and y'all didn't start kicking off your research and recovery program? They would be in terrible trouble in Indiana, probably. In Indiana... We created a model about, I think, in 2011, 2012, a population viability analysis. And it said if we did nothing from that point, which was, I believe, 2012, they would be extirpated from Indiana in 20 to 25 years. And, and that's basically just those really old animals hanging on. So, yeah, in, in Indiana, at this point, we had to do something if we wanted to keep hellbenders. Well, so, it sounds like you're going to keep hellbenders. That is as long as these things, as long as once we get them in the in the wild, they actually start reproducing on their own, and those subadults survive and continue to reproduce. Then, then yes, and I, I'm fairly confident that when we get the densities high enough, uh, they will start breeding. And we we are we do plan to start doing larval surveys soon to see if we can start picking up some some larvae from those. So. Well, I'm, I'm sure interested in hearing how things go with this and as the story progresses. Uh, I have one more question for you in this, our little bonus segment. Yeah. Did you have any experience with Hellbenders before you signed on to this project? I had a, a little bit of experience. So I had worked for the summer before I graduated undergrad, I had worked as an invasive species technician. I was actually 
I was removing wall lizards from a small established population in southern Indiana, a recently established population. And my boss was the state herpetologist. And he asked me to go out one day to do some hellbender stuff. So I went out and did some hellbender stuff with him. And that was that was really fun. And then I worked for him again the following summer. And we did a few more hellbender surveys. But that was pretty much the extent of my hellbender experience was maybe three or four surveys uh, going out and, and doing that kind of that annual DNR survey that I, I mentioned before. And little did you know. Little did I know that, yeah, this was going to be this was going to be 10 years of the next 15 years of my life. <laughs> and so probably this is just going to keep rolling for a while. Uh, uh, the project will keep rolling. Maybe you'll keep rolling with it for a while. Yeah, that's that's the plan. Good, because then I can get some good updates and I'll have you back on when you get really exciting results with the with the little ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that's what we're hoping. We're hoping I think we're going to start larval surveys next year, uh, either 2021 or 2022. And we're really hopeful. I mean, that would be the first the first uh, group of actually it might be the first larvae that any researcher has ever seen in in Indiana since, you know, I don't think Mitten ever saw any larvae when he he did his surveys. So it'd be pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of snorkel time, and uh, then it's fun time in the river. Oh yeah, that, that's summertime too. So I don't have to freeze while I'm I'm doing those surveys. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming back on the show for just a little bit, and I appreciate you you giving us some extra time because I thought the the whole refugia thing was something we shouldn't miss yeah. talking about because it's really kind of a kernel of the recovery program. Yeah, it's a, it's a big it's a big part of most states programs. I mean, I'm I'm not sure of a state at this point that doesn't at least in some capacity use the nest boxes for for the adults. Um, I don't know of any states that use the cobble beds and there are there has been some work with the juvenile huts in some other states, but yeah, the nest boxes are kind of a I mean, everybody uses has their own little nest box that they use and a little tweak on it. So I'm surprised I, I should have remembered that last time. But. Well, we were just excited. There was so much cool stuff to talk about. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, for Nick, for coming on the show. And uh, we'll keep in touch on this issue, eh? And I'll see you sometime. Yep. Yep. See you later. Thanks for having right. me. That is it for episode eight. I want to thank my guest, Nick Bergmeier, for coming on the show, not just once, but twice, and giving us the skinny on snot otters. Thanks, Nick, and keep up the good work. And folks, see the show notes for lots of interesting and useful links concerning hellbenders, along with some cool photos from Nick and his fellow hellbender heroes. Don't forget, if you like the show, Please take a moment to give it a rating on whatever podcast platform you use. It really does help to spread the word and bring a wider audience to the show. Thank you so much. Just a couple more things before I go. You can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group. And you can also email me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime... Please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.